This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to I'm So Obsessed, where we talk with actors, artists, and creators about their work, career, and current obsession. I'm your host, Patrick Holland, and my guest is the actor, comedian, writer, and director, Stephen Merchant, who's behind such shows as The Office, Extras, and Life's Too Short. He's won two Golden Globe Awards, three BAFTA Awards, and an Emmy. He's also starred as Caliban in the film Logan. Merchant's latest project is season two of the Prime Video series Outlaws, which he co-created as well as wrote and directed. He stars in the show as part of an ensemble that includes Christopher Walken. The comedy drama series follows a bunch of people doing community service for breaking the law and how they get entangled into something much bigger and more dangerous. Take a listen to part of the trailer for season two of Outlaws. Craig, is Rosie? I was giving you a blowy when you reversed that police car. How did it go? Not great. Got 120 hours of community service. Back to it! Ended up getting blackmailed, and now I'm in hot to a ruthless London drug dealer. Oh, you have been a bad boy. Do you know who I am? I'm the person you stole an impossible amount of money from. We have eight weeks. You have to get the money back. We spent it. You've already spent hundreds of thousands of pounds. I didn't. Okay, at least one of us isn't a total idiot. My grandson stole my cut. I withdraw my last remark. I want to say there's so much I want to talk to you about. I'm such a big fan of your work. We're going to use audio only, so don't feel free to look handsome all the time, Mr. Merchant. And for those listening, Stephen looks like the most handsome you've ever seen him before, so... Um, it's pretty great. <laughs> it's very nice of you. You certainly know how to schmooze the guests. I do because uh, I'm a schmoozer. No, I wouldn't say that, but I'm, a, you know, I'm one of those people like I definitely, I'm the person who like in high school, I would get along with like all the, like the jocks and the, the, the freaks and the nerds and the, you know, all, all the different people. Like, it's like everyone just is like, oh yeah, everyone likes Patrick. It's like, and I'm like, oh, maybe I'm a schmoozer. <laughs> I thought I was the same way, but it was less... I never felt like I was a member of any of those groups. You know, I was I was sort of, I was the social butterfly flitting between them all, trying not to get hurt or insulted. Exactly. And I think that's kind of what kind of helped me have a mostly positive experience in high school. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely that. I mean, I mean, let's be honest, I ended up in theater and journalism. So you could argue that that's, that is a group itself. So like theater is like the, right. I always found theater or like, like uh, or improv, especially like at that age, you're, it's kind of like, oh, you got kicked out of band and football and this, or you didn't find that. Yeah, come do theater. <laughs> well, we never really, we had, we never really had this kind of theater group in high school. We did have that. We, we we had a teacher that would write plays herself that she would then stage uh, at the end of the year. And in fact, she was a little ahead of the curve because they were kind of jukebox musicals before <laughs> that was a thing. So that we did one that was set in the twenties with sort of flapper music and one in the fifties with Eddie Cochran. And, and anyway, they, for some reason I got cast even in those early years as a sort of, I was a, a comedy, a comedy reverend in one. 
<laughs> and um, and I was judging a sort of Greece style dance contest. And um, and I remember I had to uh, every night I had to open an envelope and announce the winners. So I'd open this envelope and I go, and the winners are you know Jeff and Tracy. And then uh, one smart night, I thought I'm going to say, uh, and the winners are a pint of milk and two loaves of bread. Oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> that's my wife's shopping list. Anyway, you know when you're a kid and you do a joke and there's, there's, there's parents in the audience, they will laugh at anything, even resembling a gag, because they're so bored <laughs> that anything that's just slightly better than what else, what else is going on, they will laugh at. So they laughed, and I thought, well, I'm a comic genius. And <laughs> the teacher came running backstage, and she's like, Merchant, that wasn't in the script. How dare you change my lines? And I remember thinking, yeah, rock and roll, love. <laughs> You can't, you can't constrain me. I'm Robin Williams. <laughs> and, um, anyway, um, I, that was sort of my first taste, I think, of kind of of a proper audience and the idea that you could you could make them laugh and it was quite sort of intoxicating. And, and did you plan that bit, or is it something where you just like, yeah, it'd be kind of fun to do that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's, it's the lamest gag, but for some reason at the time, it seems so outrageous to, to sort of do this and to not tell anybody and to just spring it on the other actors and and every night then I would change it whatever I would open it would be a different shopping list and um and each night the teacher would come backstage and be like merchant and I'd sort of be, you know, but she she quietly loved it of course and so you know I, I, I so also I also like that your teacher's kind of like uh 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 uh, the Jetsons boss, the boss. <laughs> oh yeah, my impressions of adults when I'm a kid are always kind of, you know, it's like Principal Skinner or something. <laughs> yeah. No, I totally get that. Um, I, I want to say that I, I didn't know much about the show Outlaws until I was prepping for this, and I saw the first kind of like two and a half, three episodes from season one. It's a good show. It, it's so Thanks much easier. Much. It's so much easier when these interviews, the things are good because you talk about, but I thought in, in the spirit of the show, and if this is obnoxious, you've done this a million times, you can just acknowledge this. We would kind of start off with one of Lady Jessica's get to know you games uh, from the show Outlaws. So uh, what would your poor name be? And her, her parameters are first pet's name and first street you lived on. Uh well, then it would then if it was it's first pet and first street, isn't it? Yes. So yeah. it, mine would be um, I think mine would be Tabby King, <laughs> which is not bad. Although it sounds more like a woman's porn name, perhaps than a. Than I don't a, know. It, it could or it could be like you know now things are you know there's the lines are blurred between. That's true. You're right. Stuff. Absolutely. Why be so gender specific? You're absolutely right. Yeah. If anything, oh. I think it could be really popular. Yeah, mine would be. Uh, <laughs> I swear to God, this is it. Mine would be Princess Bordeaux. Princess Bordeaux. Yeah, I think that sounds a, more like someone who runs a brothel. Yeah, or or like um um I would run a brothel and then kind of like outlive my success, but still be at the brothel. Like that sounds like a Princess Bordeaux. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but Princess Bordeaux, you know, you, you better go down to Bordeaux's because <laughs> yeah. you know, it's where you know it's where one of Al Capone's henchmen gets gets shot. I hear you might see Tabby. She stops by there regularly. <laughs> exactly. um, <laughs> um, so for the show Outlaws, um, I wonder, like, how do you describe the show? Because it's kind of a comedy, but it's kind of a thriller. It's an ensemble thing, but it's kind of more almost at moments like a drama. How do you describe Outlaws? Well, I mean, there's a there's that sort of word that is very divisive called dramedy isn't there which some people love some people hate i don't have an issue with it i think it's a perfectly fine word because it seems to me that so many of my favorite things are often dramatic but have a comic element i'm thinking right back to 
when I was growing up watching Alfred Hitchcock movies, you know, you see a movie like North by Northwest, it's full of humor and, and um, a lot of Hitchcock's work, uh, you know, and then through the eighties, it was things like uh, Beverly Hills Cop or Midnight Run <laughs> that were, you know, sort of famously, you know, mixed those two flavors. And then uh, I suppose in more recent years, I think, I think there was some you know, hilariously brilliant yet dark episodes of uh, the Sopranos, most famously the Pine Barrens episode where uh, <laughs> Paulie and Christopher get lost in the wilderness, you know, very, very funny. Um, but also dramatic. Um, and then I guess, I guess shows like Succession are very good at balancing that. So um, to me, I, I, you know, I felt like uh, I wanted it to, to be a genre show in that there are a, a very low level criminals that get involved in a sort of bigger crime conspiracy. So I wanted some of the sort of genre thrills, but I like the idea of it being quite a suburban version of that, that it wasn't overly high octane. It was kind of ordinary people dragged into sort of an, an extraordinary situation. Um, and so it would have the drama and it can have the, the sort of moments of thriller tension, but it could also be funny when it when it chose to be really and not sort of allow ourselves to be too defined by genre. And I think you mentioned gender fluidity, but it feels like genre fluidity now is, I think, more common than perhaps it was when uh, when I was growing up. No, and, and I mean, uh, it's almost like you've read the script I have for questions, but it feels like, I mean, shows like yours, uh, Better Call Saul, Barry, there's so many of these I call them the spectrum of like dramedies or dark comedy thrillers, however you want to describe it. And each one has a different mix of those genres, right? And yeah. um, but do you think that's just where we're at today as an audience and and like and creators that in 2022 we we need to have those like layers and that depth to something that's even would be called a dark comedy, maybe in the 80s or 90s? For me, it's simply that that's my perception of life. It feels to me that my experience of life is that sudden turn from the from the dramatic to the comic and back again. And I co-created this with a guy called Elgin James, who uh, is perhaps also known to your listeners for co-creating a Mayans MC. And Elgin um, was, you know, by his own admission, you know, ran with gangs growing up uh, and subsequently went to prison and came out of that and became a successful writer and director and producer. Um, you know, and yet he would tell me stories of that sort of, if you like, that more criminal life. And this will surprise you, but I've been in very few street gangs and I've done very little prison time, which I'm ashamed to say. But um, <laughs> but Elgin would say, for instance, that he loved reading when he was growing up, but he didn't want the other gang members to know that he was a big reader. And it was just the image of him having to hide Pride and Prejudice as the other gang came in, you know, to, and terrified that they might, you know, it's, it's even worse than being a snitch that you're reading Dostoevsky. And um, anyway, just that idea of those kind of that juxtaposition of sort of running with gangs, but also kind of quite secretly being a reader and having a library card. I just thought immediately funny. And, and, and when Elgin and I met, we talked a lot about that and about, I suppose, that idea that when I was growing up in kind of suburban England, he was, you know, breaking into houses with this gang and that we were living two very different lives. And yet when we met all those years later, we had the same sense of humor. We had, you know, the same sort of creative impulses. We were just, we just never encountered each other. And I suppose for me, it's like, well, what if I had met him back in the day? What if I had been dragged into a house robbery? How would I, as this awkward six foot seven English guy have coped in that scenario? And so to me, the fact that we both coexisted in the world means that the mixture of you know, the awkward English guy and the sort of tough gang person can can perfectly coexist also, in a drama. I, I, I know it's a hypothetical scenario you put out there of you breaking into houses, but I think you would be the shelf guy. You'd be like, anything on the shelves, this or yeah. higher, that's you. That's Yeah, or dare I say it, the lookout. 
The look. <laughs> it makes sense, right? You're six foot seven. I mean, I'm, I can I, I can spot a cop car coming from miles away. You know, I, I was joking with people. I'll do it now. This is horrible. I was going to start the podcast like this. Hang on, let me get it here. Like this to make you feel comfortable. It's like just for the natural, natural. <laughs> just you should perhaps explain what you're doing for your listeners. Um, that... I'm raising the. I don't want to teach you your job, but. Oh, you know, well, you've done more of this than I have, to be honest. So this is good. I'm learning. You're like, you're being kind of a, a, a teaching moment. Uh, basically, I raised my standing desk. So I framed the lower part of my body out of the shot. So it just looked like my eyes to yeah. make it from the perspective of someone who's taller than me, which that is are. very much how I see the world. Yes, it is. And it's, it's a, am I playing on the trope that, oh, wow, Stephen Merchant's tall. What should we talk about? Don't talk about his tallness, and I just did, so I apologize. The problem I have is not that I don't mind talking about it, it's that I have nothing new to say about it. Mm. It's um, it's one of those subjects, being tall is curiously fascinating to other people, and to me is fairly funny, <laughs> but it's like saying, um, it's like talking about, well, tell me what it's like being white. Oh yeah, I could tell you all about <laughs> it. It's pretty, oh, no, oh yeah, I see, you were just. <laughs> but also I gotta wonder though, like um, um, going back to that, you talked about Elgin um, and you've worked obviously famously like Ricky Gervais had a creative relationship. How do you, like, what is that partnership or that like when you co-create a show or co-write something, how does that actually work for you? Or does it just depend on the two people? Well, I think it's about, it's about finding a, a sort of like-minded person. As you said, I mean, uh, my memory of first working with Ricky Gervais was we spent a lot of time talking about the things that we loved, you know, in comedy, in movies, in music, um, and then also the things we hated. And, you know, and Elgin and I very much the same, you know, in that you bond over those things and you begin to piece together if you are sort of like-minded. And, you know, I've met lots of people who I've admired and thought, you know, are talented people, but I could sense just from chatting with them that perhaps we weren't on quite the same creative wavelength. And it's no disrespect to their talent. I just, it just didn't quite feel like we would gel. Whereas with someone like Elgin or with Ricky, that was exactly how I felt. Like I just sensed a kind of immediate kinship. And so, so much of what you do then um, is just that back and forth, that bouncing ideas, uh, you know, which is just, I, I mean, I find, I, I enjoy writing on my own, but I find it harder than working in collaboration, obviously, because, you know, as you know, you, 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 the, as soon as you talk to someone else, or you start to thrash out an idea, you start to speak it out loud, something doesn't make sense, or I don't you know, I feel like I can, I can arrive at answers quicker. If I'm stood there, or if I'm sat there looking at a blank screen, every possible opportunity for the characters to do everything that, you know, they could go in any direction and say anything, and you're like, ah, it's quite intimidating, but, um, but yeah, having a collaborator, I just feel like you you cut down your options much quicker. And, and kind of related to that, in the back to season one of Outlaws, there's a scene between um, Ronnie and Ben, and they're talking about the type of person everyone is who's doing community service. Um, so when you're writing a show like Outlaws, are you thinking the terms of like those character types? Is that kind of like a meta moment where you're like, yes, that guy is like a right wing person. She's like a left wing person. She's like- Well, a, it was, I mean, it, it began, it, it sort of originated uh, well, originally I had the idea because my mother used to supervise criminals doing community service, which is the sort of uh, genesis of the show. And as you say, the kind of the main subject of the show, this group of unlikely people who've all done sort of relatively minor crimes coming together, having never met each other, who then get sucked into a sort of bigger crime conspiracy that's happening behind the scenes. And when we were developing it, Elgin and I, we talked, it was during the rise of Trump. It was Brexit in the UK. People were very divided politically, socially, and um 
and we felt like this was a good opportunity to take all of the sort of archetypes that we felt people were being categorized as, particularly in the media and social media. You were left, you were right, you were black, you were white, you were male, female, you, everything sort of became very binary all of a sudden. And we felt like, well, let's take all of those kind of archetypes that we're, that we're seeing everywhere, characterize everyone, and then let's sort of peel back the layers and let's reveal the humanity behind them and see them start to work together and can they find common ground? And it hopefully became quite an optimistic show about people from different walks of life, different life experiences, finding you know what what unites them uh, rather than divides them and and I think you know I know that might sound like a rather trite message but it seemed to me that it was kind of worth reiterating you know in 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 a, in a period we live in where it feels like you know everyone's sort of pulled the drawbridge up and they're in their own little castle and that sort of you know interacting with other people that you wouldn't normally meet is a productive thing to do but I think the way you guys presented on the show I think that's why I was surprised I'm like I was just pulled in immediately and I was like oh I was getting worried about some of the consequences of something that happens and uh, I don't want to give things away um, and I, or what these two care, what was going to happen to these two characters and like, Oh yeah, it's a, it's not like, you know, there's silly comedy moments, but there's also like that, there's that drive that kind of connects it all together too, which is really nice. Well, also, you know, we had, um, we began shooting and about 10 days into filming the first season COVID struck and like so many other productions we shut down and uh, we didn't know when we were going to resume. And so, you know, ever the hustler, I said to uh, Amazon, listen, how about I write another season of the show while we're in lockdown? And then when we come back, we can shoot two back to back and we'll sort of not have, we'll have made up time, you know. So that's what they let me do amazingly. So I managed to get the kind of writers together on a Zoom and we we thrashed out a whole season two. And so when we did resume, we did film two seasons back to back. And so um, it gave us a real opportunity to, uh, you mentioned things like Better Call Saul, um, really map out that sort of arc and, and see where those characters are going to go. And so I hope if you continue watching the series and you get to, say, the end of season two, you'll think to yourself, wow, that's quite a journey those characters have taken. And, and in season two, we really ramp up the pressure on them and we we dial up the, uh, the threats and the jeopardy. And it feels like all the stakes are risen, but it's all there because we could kind of plant the seeds in season one and just let them grow organically and let the kind of heat um, kind of rise under the characters. Um, you know, it's quite naturally. And one of the things I always loved about Breaking Bad and then Better Call Saul was that they never, they never shied away from a problem they'd given a character. You know, if there was a body in the trunk of a car, it was going to be there and they were going to have to get rid of the body in the trunk. They couldn't, it didn't just, wasn't just, wasn't, it wasn't just forgotten between seasons two and three. It was there. It was, a, it was hanging over them. And I really like that. They sort of make every problem a new storyline. And that was what we tried to do with our show. So there's sort of nothing that we set up in season one that doesn't come back to haunt them in season two. There is another aspect of the show, which I'm sure you get asked about a lot. And I want to just uh, describe what the press release uh, someone sent me for the show says, and it includes this actor named Christopher Walken. And it references, they have the little parentheses, Severance and the Deer Hunter. It's like, yeah, you know, you made Christopher Walken from Severance and the Deer Hunter, but I think <laughs> other movies and things he's done too. It's like, um, uh, it's, I mean, they should just do a link to his IMDb page and absolutely. say, you know, 300 like, you movies, go enjoy. <laughs> but if you had to pick like a, a favorite, like a movie or TV show or thing he's done or, or a couple of them, what, what would be the your top Walken uh, stuff to recommend to someone? One of my favorite Walken movies is um, At Close Range. Oh, which is sort of a rather overlooked gem from the 80s. It's Christopher Walken and Sean Penn. 
and it's the young pen sort of fairly fresh after you know fast times at ridgemont high and pen is excellent walken's never been better and pen is a sort of um you know, a kid who's sort of growing up in a, in a kind of, um, in a sort of, uh, maybe in a trailer or, you know, he's in sort of, you know, some rural part of America. And Walken is his kind of shady dad who sort of drifts in and out of his life. And, you know, there's, there's a sort of gangster element. I think it's based on a true story. And it's a really scintillating performance from Christopher. It's He's got a sort of almost panther-like way of moving in and out of scenes. And, he's he's sort of handsome and charming and charismatic and then but then you know can do that turn where he's suddenly malevolent and sinister and the sparks fly between him and Penn and it's just a really excellent kind of family drama thriller that's well worth hunting out if, if people haven't seen it and um and watching that again uh, in anticipation of him being in the show I was just excited I was, you know, I mean, it's it's obvious, but just that that the way that he can switch from the kind of charming grin to the sort of malevolent menace in a second is is certainly one of the reasons why we wanted him in in our show. That he plays this sort of small time crook called Frank, who, you know, is kind of mysterious in a sense. Like, why is he in England? What is his backstory? And and over time, you realise he's essentially just a kind of small petty criminal. But being able to turn on the the sort of Walken charm or the Walken menace as and when it was needed was was great, was really fun. And again, something we get to use a lot in the in the second season. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. name of our podcast is called i'm so obsessed steven what are you currently obsessed with what am i currently obsessed with i know that that was the name of your show and i did intend to think about this beforehand and then life got away from me and i didn't jeez uh well i have to say funnily enough you mentioned uh severance which um christopher is in and i uh did not know i he i think had filmed that show before he came to us in the uk but no one had seen it So I didn't think to ask him about it. And then I watched it once it, you know, once we'd finished working with Chris and um, loved it. I thought it was terrific. I'm not always a fan of the super high concept, slightly sci-fi show, but for some reason that one really got under my skin. I think it's partly because I'm always interested in workplaces. Um, and again, the sort of odd surrogate families that are formed in those environments. I just thought it was a really nice conceit. I loved all the actors. Uh, just, it was constantly surprising. You know, the aesthetic was lovely. I think Ben Stiller is a terrific director, uh, certainly in terms of establishing the style. Um, I loved that brilliant uh, miniseries he did previously with Patricia Arquette, where, you know, where the, the prison, uh, prison, prison yeah, yeah. drama. Fantastic. Yeah. And so, um, yes, I was really, really enamored with Severance. I thought it was uh, a really uh, enticing piece of TV. And I was, I find that very pleasurable. Um, but I do, I'm a fan, you know, I'm a fan of the things which everyone talks about, whether it's uh, Succession or... Um, you know, uh, obviously a lot of the, the, the great sort of HBO dramas and there's been some good sort of uh, good British dramas as well. And um, 
and also revisiting stuff. I mean, I we we rewatched decided for some reason to rewatch The West Wing, um, and I actually dusted off my old DVDs of The West Wing and stuck them on. And um, my God, it stands out well. It's really such a terrific show, and I know everyone knows that. But sometimes the shows kind of you know drift away uh, into the past. You sort of think, or oh, perhaps they've dated, or they don't stand up as well. But The West Wing is it's exceptional. I mean, those first few seasons are just dynamite, and the tragedy is how relevant so many of them still are. I mean, the debates they're having in those shows about abortion or about gun rights are are exactly the same arguments you're having now. And so, yeah, that was a real pleasure to revisit that. Oh, no, and it, I definitely think it's the context, the context of the time you're watching these things, obviously. Out of sake of uh, asking, I think, kind of two things in one, because there's just so much to talk about. You you write, uh, write direct, and act in the show. Uh, you talked about uh, filming season one and two at the same time. Is there like, is there a, a change you've noticed after working on the show, going into like the later episodes of season two that that made it easier to film or easier to to shoot, or because it all you shot it all at the same time, it just kind of felt like one thing to you. Well, I think the whole thing was quite monstrous because of filming under COVID conditions. And again, I, I'm not trying to, you know, ask you to you know, sympathise and bring out the violins. It's sort of, you know, it, it's everyone suffered that way uh, in the film community and, and obviously far worse in, in, in all kinds of jobs. But um, it did make filming very difficult. And so, um, but I suppose um, what does become easier is that the actors slip into their roles you know, so the first kind of, you know, first week or two, you're sort of finding your feet a little bit and everyone's kind of getting to know each other and relaxing into the characters. And then they're sort of off to the races, really, you know, and then, um, you know, we we could just sort of left, leave them to it. And they just, they and they were bonding as a team. And, you know, as the characters in the show begin to get more familiar with each other. So we were behind the scenes as well, you know, and so that you start to feel more relaxed. And so, you know, as, as time goes on, you know, and you, again partly because we have that little break you could sort of see where the chemistry was and you could write to that a little or you know you could you just yeah so in a sense you were like you were sort of like a, a big gang going through this arduous process together and and it bonded us together and I think that bleeds into the show and so I think by the second season we feel a lot more connected as characters which is sort of as it should be really um so uh Yes, although it was not sort of um, planned that way, it ended up being kind of a, a sort of pleasant surprise. What's a piece of advice you were given that stuck with you? A piece of advice I was given uh, that stuck with me? Well, uh, going back to the Outlaws for a second, I remember, um, I think it was John Plowman, who was an executive at the BBC when we were first doing The Office. And he remember, he remember him saying that one of the great things with, with sitcoms is, you, uh, and I think this also applies to dramas, is you chase your characters up a tree and then you throw rocks at them. And we very much kept that in mind when we were doing The Outlaws. And I feel like in season one, we chased them up the tree and in season two, we were throwing rocks at them and anything else lying around. Um, and so uh, that's always stuck with me. I always thought that was really good, good advice um, when you're trying to, you know, when you're trying to think about your show or your project. The other thing we do is we do a thing called pick one. I gave you a couple options. You select one. It doesn't mean the thing that you pick is better than the other thing. And I encourage you to talk things out. So let's do pick one real quick. Um, the first one I have is writing, directing, or acting. If you had to pick one, which would you pick? If I had to pick one, I would pick the writing. Um, I think because um, 
ultimately it's the thing that gives me the most satisfaction i find directing uh enjoyable very creative but very stressful you're managing a lot of things wearing a lot of hats um you you're suddenly a, a you're a you're a people manager you're managing time someone again described it and it's, for some reason a lot of my analogies are to do with rocks or boulders <laughs> but someone described uh, directing a movie it's like you're being chased down a hill by a boulder and you're just trying to not get crushed by it and um that is often my experience of it uh so i i like it i enjoy it but i do find it um stressful uh and acting i again enjoy um but I sometimes feel frustrated because I'm only one piece of the puzzle if I'm also not directing the project. And so there's a lot of sort of sitting in your trailer and wondering what, what fun stuff is going on um, and not sort of quite being part of it, you know? Um, and so uh, I enjoy it, but I, but I think ultimately with the writing, you, you know, you're looking at a blank computer screen and you start typing and, you know, with a TV show, I don't know, 60 pages later, you've, you've got, you've got an episode of TV and you've created a world and you've created characters. And that's, there's a real thrill and satisfaction to that, which has never gone away. Even when I started doing it as a kid, it's the same thrill. It's, it's amazing. Also, it's like at the same time, it's, you wouldn't have anything without that script. And yet we glamorize a lots of other aspects of that process even more, which is fascinating. Yeah. All right. So pick one us audience or a UK audience. I mean, that one, I, 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 I genuinely can't decide. And I'll tell you why. Obviously, you know, I love appealing to the UK audience. I'm from the UK. I grew up here. It was sort of my first introduction to TV, uh, watching kind of British comedies, Monty Python, you mentioned, and, you know, the, John Cleese, the, one of the great performers from that show was a big influence on me. Um, and, you know, I, I started doing stand up when I was quite young, and those were very much with British audiences. But I was always a fan of American shows. I was a big fan of, of American comedians. Uh, of American movies, of American TV. They were very, very influential to me. And so when finally, you know, my own work started to find an appreciative audience in America, I was very thrilled by that because it seems so distant and so exotic and so sort of impossible growing up in a small town in England that one day you could find fans across the pond. So so to me, you know, um, both audiences have a sort of different place in my heart, really. Um, and I wouldn't want to choose between them. <laughs> I think that's the right answer. And the last one, I, I admit this, you, uh, I'm going to talk about The Office, but specifically, I've always wondered this, uh, pick one, The Office UK character, Simon, the IT guy, or The Office US character, Dwight? Well, they're not, they're not direct correlations of the same character. You're right. Yeah, no, they're, they're not. not because there's yeah. oftentimes Dwight's reference as like the sidekick uh, in the original, but the uh, sidekick in the original is a, a different kind of character type than Dwight. But Simon the IT guy seems like a Dwight kind of character in the UK. I guess that we had a character called Gareth who was the sidekick to the boss, who I think is the more obvious yeah, yeah, yeah. translation into Dwight. But like you say, there are certainly elements of Dwight and the IT guy. And the IT guy will always have a fondness in my heart because that was a performer called Matt Holness who uh, was so, did that, guest role so perfectly it's almost there's very few actors I've ever worked with where they just nailed it beyond your wildest dreams and he just got every dimension of it right this kind of a condescending sneery um sort of nerd uh funny enough I, I remember one of the sources of that character for me was I was on a subway platform and I heard these two guys and they were wearing kind of long matrix style leather coats around the time probably just after the matrix 
and I'm and I one was sort of slightly smaller than the other, and I heard one of them say, um, and I and I forgive me because I don't remember all the the correct names. So if you're a super Star Wars fan, you will you'll get this right, and I won't. But it was something like, oh well, you know when um when Wedge appeared in Return of the Jedi, and the other guy went, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Well, I don't remember seeing Wedge in Return of the Jedi. I remember seeing him in Empire Strikes Back. I don't remember seeing him in whichever one he was in. And the other guy, well, yeah, no, that's what I meant. That's what I meant. Well, if that's what you meant, why didn't you say it? Why didn't you say it? That's what you meant. And I just thought the idea of, of two nerds arguing over Star Wars, one bullying the other over a minute <laughs> knowledge of Star Wars, which normally would get them bullied in any other walk of life, or certainly back then, before Star Wars became as cool as it is. Um, I just, just thought that was just adorable. And so the idea of that, as a kind of guy who comes into fix your computer, who has all the power, right? Because we don't really understand our computers. So those guys <laughs> have so much power over us. Um, so to me, to, to this day, that's still one of the, my favorite things that uh, that we've done and that an actor's brought to life. Absolutely. Uh, Stephen, it's been such a wonderful delight getting to talk with you. Congrats on Outlaws. I can't wait to finish watching season one and jump into season two on August 5th. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I want to thank Stephen for chatting with me, and I want to thank you for listening. You can watch Season 1 of Outlaws on Prime Video, and on August 5th, you can watch the Season 2 premiere. I'm So Obsessed was created by our executive producer, Daniel Ramirez. Our editor and lead producer is Sophia Fox-Sowell, and this episode was produced by Brian Van Gelder. Please take a moment and subscribe to I'm So Obsessed on your favorite podcast app. Follow the show on Twitter at I'm So Obsessed Pod. And until next time, take care.